Any other way that we could phrase that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> you guys want attention for this podcast or not? Oh. <laughs> Welcome to episode 31 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We have another guest episode today, and we are very, very, very excited to welcome Brad Stone. David will uh, will tell you about Brad before we dive in, but um, I wanted to, uh, to do a little bit of administrative stuff before. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. For those of you who are longtime listeners of, uh, of Acquired, you know about the Slack. But if you're new to the show, join over 400 other listeners of Acquired for real-time discussion, analysis, and news as it's happening, whether it's the Snap IPO, Trello a few weeks ago, AppDynamics, uh, a lot of interesting conversation going on there about the M&A world. And lastly, before we dive in, a big thank you to KUOW, a uh, radio station here in Seattle, who has generously let us record in their studio this morning. Now, David, over to you to introduce Brad. Yeah, we are super honored and excited to have Brad on the show today. Um, he is the uh, actually our second guest uh, from Bloomberg after 
our great show with Alex Sherman a couple months back. Um, but Brad is the senior executive editor of global technology at Bloomberg. And before that, he covered tech in Silicon Valley for nearly 20 years as a reporter at uh, Bloomberg, um, Newsweek, and the New York Times. Most relevantly and fun for us, um, Brad is the author a few years back of the canonical history of Amazon, The Everything Store, which, as listeners know, we have discussed a lot on this show um, and has had a, a big impact on Ben and my thinking. Uh, it's just a great book that we can't recommend enough. Um, and Brad actually has now a new book out called The Upstarts, which covers the histories thus far of the kind of new generation of defining Internet companies, Airbnb and Uber. Um, I've heard of those. <laughs> uh, we, uh, Ben and I both read it. It's great. We highly recommend it. We're going to be talking about a lot of the content within it on this show. Um, but definitely go out and, and pick up a copy. Um, if you like this show and history and analysis of, um, kind of waves of technology companies, uh, you're going to love this book. So thank you, Brad. We're super excited to have you here. Thanks guys. Yeah. And for, and, and for listeners in, in my kind of typical style, I, uh, knowing we were interviewing Brad this morning, just finished the upstarts last night and, uh, I, I loved it. I mean, it's truly, I, I, I talked a lot about the everything store on the episode with, uh, with Tom Alberg, but really the spiritual successor to, to that Amazon book. And it's interesting how, um, it really is the next generation of a lot of the sort of same mentality and tactics, um, in, in Uber that, uh, um, and to a lesser extent, Airbnb, but in Uber that uh, we saw on Amazon. Thank you. Yeah. It's hard to follow up the story of Amazon because there's really <laughs> nothing like it. And, you know, so somewhere along the journey of trying to find what was next, they decided, okay, maybe there, maybe there isn't a follow up. Maybe, maybe you can look at a kind of wave of companies and a defining moment in Silicon Valley. And that's kind of how I stumbled on this sort of dual profile. Very cool. Yeah. It's great. So today, uh, we're going to talk about something that, um, a story, a merger that probably a lot of our readers know happened recently, but hasn't gotten nearly, I think, enough press uh, in uh, in the Western world, at least. And what press there has been has really been thanks to Brad. He's been the foremost reporter on this. Um, and that's the merger that happened last fall between Uber and DD Shushing uh, in, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, I may be butchering <laughs> it, um, in China. Uh, this is... This is a wild story, and um, there are so many lessons here that, that I think all of our listeners can take away, and we're really, really glad to have Brad here to tell it with us. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the story along the way, but definitely want to credit Brad. You know, it's his story that he did the reporting on. So with that, uh, I'm going to dive in. So we pick up the story in 2012. Uber's kind of already become a you know pretty meaningful household world, household word, at least in the U.S., and, uh, and is starting to expand internationally. They've gotten word uh, that there's this company in London called Halo, which started with the black cabs in London has had a lot of success there and is and is thinking of is planning uh, plotting to come into the US and threaten Uber here. So in in response and Brad talks a lot about this in the book, Uber mounts a really aggressive international expansion campaign. And at the same time, uh, Lyft and Sidecar have really pioneered true ride sharing in the US, not just the black car um, uh, tax, limo uh, and livery drivers that um, Uber started with, but uh, true ride sharing where anyone can drive. Uber's responded with UberX and kind of the world is now realizing that the market for ride sharing is 
orders of magnitude bigger than anyone thought. Yeah, and and David, it's worth uh, it's worth kind of noting there that in today's world where we all take uh, Uber X's everywhere, or that's the the most common say when I'm going to take an Uber. It's an Uber X. Uber did not pioneer ride sharing. I mean, in they, fact, and they were they were reluctant to embrace it. Travis spent a lot of uh, early 2013 trying to get. Lyft and, and another company, Sidecar, shut down in California because he saw he yeah. saw it was a disruption and he thought it was illegal. And when when the California PUC didn't do anything, that's when he embraced UberX wholeheartedly. Huh. Huh. If you can't beat them, join them. Exactly. I think that uh, that's kind of Uber's motto, right? <laughs> I want to say one more thing about Halo though, because there's an interesting lesson in tactics. Halo in 2012 promoted the heck out of its international expansion. And it, that was a huge mistake because they mobilized, uh, they, they not only mobilized Uber to grow more quickly in the U.S. and then Uber got to markets like uh, Chicago uh, and other cities before Halo ever, ever really moved on its promise to expand. But Halo also stirred all this entrepreneurship in China. And so, you yeah. know, what you have to understand these days is there are entrepreneurs all over the world that are watching sites like TechCrunch religiously. And it was Halo and not really Uber or any of the other ride-sharing companies that started stirring these companies in uh, in China to start competing. Yeah, and that's that's exactly thanks for thanks for tuning me up there, Brad. <laughs> it's like you wrote this story or something. <laughs> um, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. That you know, all around the world, people are starting to wake up to the potential of this market, and and nowhere more than China uh, are entrepreneurs sort of attuned to the size of this opportunity and and ready to go after it with just kind of aggression that makes, you know, even a company like Uber look tame here, here in America. So there, as Brad writes about, there are about 30 companies between 2012 and 2013 that get started in China, wow. all going after this ride-sharing Uber opportunity. And one of those companies gets started by a young entrepreneur named Cheng Wei, who at the time was a 29-year-old salesman at Alibaba in Huangzhou. And, uh, and he had been kicking around some entrepreneurial ideas with his boss at Alibaba, a guy named Wang Gang. And, and, and actually earlier that year, they'd kind of started this side project, uh, that they could, an app that they called Momo. And Momo was, was essentially, you know, on iOS, the sort of find friends feature. It was, it was essentially that. And so they're working on this app on the side at Alibaba, see the, see the market opportunity in ride sharing and immediately pivot and rename the company DD Dash. Which uh, which translated into English means Hong Kong call a taxi, <laughs> and uh, and so when they when they pivot, they decide to leave Alibaba, go full time. Um, Cheng is the CEO, and Wang invests the initial seed capital into the company, and uh, and they're kind of off to the races along with everyone else. So wanted to ask Brad here. I mean, you spend a lot of time, you know, probably more than anybody, interviewing these folks. What did they like? You know, kind of what drove them to to start this company? Well, I mean, I I, I just love Cheng Wei. He he um you know he was he was great. I should say you know his English isn't so good, and my Chinese is non-existent. So uh, <laughs> my my partner in crime on this story was uh, uh, Lulu Chen, my, uh, one of my Bloomberg colleagues in uh, in Beijing. Um, and we you know we went to visit uh, Cheng Wei at uh, Didi's headquarters, and I I loved him because he presents his story as a series of small personal humiliations. <laughs> so he, he like for example he. Uh, in his very important college entrance exams in high school, he leaves one page blank by accident and gets into a lesser school. 
And in college, he, he gets a job selling life insurance, and he doesn't sell a single policy. <laughs> and then he signs up to, to work at a healthcare company, only to find out that it's a chain of foot massage parlors. Uh, and he, he sort of finds himself. He, he walks into an Alibaba office in Shanghai, gets a job, meets uh, Wang Gong, his, uh, his mentor. And really, they start on their entrepreneurship path because Wang Gong doesn't get a promotion and they start kind of brainstorming ideas. You know, Momo actually, you know, wasn't, it wasn't their idea. It was something that's sort of a, a kind of hack that existed on the app store in, uh, in China. And they sort of realized the power of GPS and the, the potential to do things like a halo in China taxi hailing app. And yeah, and then they launched this company called Didi only to find out that, you know, dozens upon dozens of, of other companies have had the exact same idea. Um, so, you know, here you've got this young kind of whippersnapper in Cheng Wei, Wang Gong, you know, we spoke to on the phone. Uh, he, he's very rarely does interviews, but sort of flamboyant uh, investor who, you know, has just by virtue of his small angel investment in Didi, you know, has minted uh, at least a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, it was the, wow. these guys were they had nothing, you know, and it was 30 is the number of companies that launched. You know, there may have been hundreds uh, that spun up mm -hmm. to address this opportunity in Beijing at the beginning of 2012. So, um, you know, they the odds were against them. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, as we'll as we'll talk about, there was, you know, they had they had some experience in the industry and knew what it took to succeed in China. And Brad, I think you pointed out in your book that uh, it was it was roughly the the American equivalent of a hundred k that uh, that he put into to Didi as his, his little angel. A pretty investment. good pretty good investment. Kind of on par with uh, Sequoia's six hundred k into Airbnb <laughs> two years earlier <laughs> that you also cover in the book. I'm also struck by both the similarities between Travis Kalanick and uh, and Shang Wei, you know, in terms of their histories and their failures in the past. Um, I mean, these were neither of them when they started these companies were household names, you know, far from it. But also like the complete opposite in terms of their outward personalities. Like it must have been, you know, did that come through? And as you were talking to both of them, like, you know, this 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 sort of underlying sort of drive that they have that, that I suspect has in many ways been motivated by their past failures, but just contrasted with these wildly different surfaces. I mean, I think that this is a cultural thing. It's funny because I've, I, I was recently telling some of my colleagues in, uh, in uh, in Asia, that we need to stop describing internet uh, internet CEOs and, and founders as humble, but I think like they're all trying to present a humble veneer uh, that that you know there's just kind of cultural value in, in doing that. Whereas you know in in, in the U.S., somebody like uh, Travis is you know is is doesn't hesitate to be presented or to present himself as extremely aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, Travis did that over the first few years, but behind the behind the facade, they are very much alike. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, Didi succeeded and, and beat all these companies is that, you know, Cheng Wei had a, a vision, which is that smart, smartphones and, and technology could make the, you know, could make transportation more efficient than China. Uh, but along with that idealism, there was a ruthlessness to go and pursue that goal uh, mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, like like everywhere else in the world, uh, ride hailing, you know, was was quasi legal in China, you know, and, and, and yet nevertheless, he sent those early employees, um, uh, you know, to uh, to cities to go and launch without permission. And in some places they were shut down and then, you know, he nevertheless kind of persevered. And that's kind of what it took in this industry, a relentlessness in the approach. 
In thinking about that perseverance and that relentlessness, you know, as you meet with the, the founders of D, the founders of Uber, founders of Amazon, do you get the sense that when you talk to these people in person, there's a um, something about them that's just different than other people, that this relentlessness and this kind of ruthlessness, that that sort of thing could be predicted? Like, are they the, the inherent forces of nature that uh, that set them apart from other people? Or, you know, what is it about them? That's the, that's the big question. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't put anyone else in the category of a Jeff Bezos, right? Because he, he stands alone and, and, uh, had, had, you know, had the vision before anyone, you know, that the internet was going to change the world and, and bet so heavily on it and, and then had years of, of people thinking that, you know, Amazon was, was really just a boring retailer. I, I don't know that the Ubers and the DDs of the world have suffered the way that, you know, Amazon and its employees suffered for many years. Um, I think in terms of Cheng Wei, probably what marked him and his story is that, you know, he, and I'm sure we'll get to this, like had, had great people around him mm-hmm. and then was able, I mean, the dynamics of the Chinese market are so unique mm-hmm. that the, the Didi's smartest move very early on was to hook into Tencent. And when they did that, you know, every, everything yeah. became possible. And to, to pick up the story there, um, you know, I think what's, Striking reading the book and, and, and hearing about these the early days of the ride sharing competition in China is it makes the, you know the Uber Lyft fight that you know we think is is so ugly and, and distasteful you know here in here in the states you know it makes it look like kids in a sandbox right like these thirty companies were just brutal to each other um, and and in particular you know they all started raising large amounts of money. Um, and then going, being willing to go deeply, deeply gross margin negative by paying drivers a lot more for each ride than, um, than the riders were paying the companies. So it kind of like, it kind of becomes that they're laying siege to each other's businesses in a way, you know, um, this is war. And, and one of the tools, one of the ways that they start raising money is from the large, um, the large, the big three internet companies in China and, and, and DD Dash is actually the second one, they raise money from Tencent. Um, but before that, their competitor, Quade, uh, raises money from Alibaba, which, of course, is Cheng Wei and, and, and Wang Gang's former employer. Uh, so, you know, when Brad, you talked to all these guys, like, <laughs> what was going on? Right. Well, I think when Quade went and, and raised money from Alibaba, it, it was it was pro- definitely a blow to the Didi guys because, you know, that's their... You know that's their alma mater, and uh, and and that's you know Alibaba, obviously the e-commerce giant in China. So I think that there was a moment of almost panic. You know that Alibaba had placed its bet. It was uh, it was on Kuwaiti, and uh, and as a result, uh, you know Wang Gong, uh, the investor and and, and Cheng Wei's mentor. You know his next call was to Tencent. Now, as it happened, and it was probably difficult to see in 2012, but you know Tencent has this social network uh, slash messaging platform called WeChat. That is, yeah. and is which t- was of course QQ before that, you right? Know, on- on the desktop. And, and and this was like, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? <laughs> I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, the big moment for this industry, you know, so Kwaidi and Didi start to emerge by virtue of the investments of, of, uh, of Tencent and Alibaba. Baidu is still sitting on the sidelines. And what happens at the end of uh, 2013, beginning of 2014, and again, almost sort of lucky, is that um, over the Chinese New Year, WeChat integrates uh, Didi 
as a way, and, the, and there's a product called Red Envelope or, or Red Package, and it's basically a way for, for Chinese WeChat users to give each other small gifts. And the idea of giving somebody a gift on Didi, the gift of a ride, kind of takes off. And both Tencent and Alibaba, the sponsors of these ride-sharing companies, realize you know that the next battlefield in this long-standing war between the internet giants and China is going to be mobile payments. And that the taxi companies, the ride-hailing companies, are ways to spur payment value in, in mobile, with, with mobile payments. And so they start to kind of use these two ride-sharing companies as proxies and funnel money, you know, right off their balance sheet into these companies as a way to, to drive payment volume. And that is when Didi and Kwaidi start to just take off on steroids, not only growing very rapidly, but burning tremendous amounts of money. Yeah, because this, this siege is continuing and both the, you know, Alibaba and Tencent are pouring tons of money in, but other investors, um, you know, are, are also venture firms and private equity firms also pouring in lots of money. I mean, it, it gets to be billions of dollars that these companies are burning just trying to subsidize rides to get kind of get big fast and beat the other one, right? That's right. And then you've got uh, people like Yuri Milner at DST, you know, who uh, all, all the big investors had missed on Uber. And believe me, they berate themselves uh, nonstop. And that's an interesting aspect of the story, you know, that these companies very early on did not look like the prototypical internet companies. And so, you know, a Yuri Milner who prides himself on hitting all the big ones uh, passed on Uber. Uh, and so bets big on, on ride sharing or ride hailing in China. And so, um, you know, makes an investment in Didi and then kind of sees this destructive war playing out between these two indigenous Chinese ride hailing companies and gradually over, uh, over to the, throughout 2014 starts to broker a piece. Not only because, uh, both companies are losing a lot of money and just, you know, and, and, and siphoning cash off of Alibaba and Tencent's balance sheet because, you know, I think that they also had the sort of foresight to know that Uber was coming and that uh, the yeah. Chinese companies were probably better off together than they were apart. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about the, these, uh, the, the big three in China. They're investment firms. They're their own business. And in America, like, or in the U.S., we, we tend to have, I mean, there's corporate venture, but you don't have like, oh, Facebook invested in them. So, you know, Google needs to go invest in someone else. The, those corporations just, just buy companies, right? And then they, they subsume them into their offering. But we don't really have this like first tier of funding is kind of corporate venture like there is. Going well, the funny China. thing, we can make an interesting juxtaposition with Google and Uber because uh, Google Ventures invests in Uber. It's, the, it's their biggest investment ever. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they start competing with Uber, right? <laughs> they they roll out a ride-sharing... Uh, well, they, they start talking about the ride-sharing service, but they scare Uber into thinking that maybe Uber will be a competitor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and relations between the two companies are strained. Whereas, you know, Tencent invests in Didi mm -hmm. and, you know, it doesn't, you know, doesn't ever compete with it. And, you know, um, and as a result, you know, it's, it's so it's interesting. It's a different model. I mean... Um, you know, I think I think maybe sort of smart. You know, that kind of Tencent uh, knows that that is not in its uh, core competency. Yeah. Well, it also feels like, to an outsider perspective, it feels like these these big three Chinese internet companies are willing to sort of more directly exercise their influence in the market. There, you know, if if um, if that's the right way to put it, then then the internet companies are in the U.S. I mean, it's really hard to imagine Google or Facebook sort of giving preferential treatment to, you know, like if Facebook started giving preferential app installs to, you know, one 
ride sharing app over another or one, you know, other form of, of, of company over another, you know, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that going well here. You're right. That's a great point. That's a great point. And, you know, not only, and we'll get to this, but not only was, ten, was Tencent prioritizing Didi on WeChat, but when Uber comes into China, it starts blocking Uber from WeChat. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a good point. I think that there would be some regulatory or antitrust scrutiny if Google was to play favorites in the way that uh, Tencent and Alibaba did in China. Yeah. So Yuri Milner kind of comes in, brokers this piece uh, between between Didi and Kawade, and uh, they know Uber's coming. Didi ends up, you know, quote unquote, winning the battle. They get 60% of the combined company. Chang Wei stays on as CEO of the company. Um, and I just want to you know, sort of step back for a minute here and talk about this is like two years after these companies were founded. So they go from getting started, inspired by Halo, not Uber, um, you know, having this sort of wide playing field and then a bloodbath emerges, the big internet companies get involved, they raise and burn billions of dollars and like 700 days go by, you know, I mean, the pace is just like blistering. Well, and one funny, one funny thing from, from the book, um, you know, there were moments of like just technical meltdown for these companies and they, you know, they mythologize these periods within the company. I think they call one seven days, seven nights where they worked so hard to prop up the infrastructure that one of the engineers had to go to the hospital because his contact lenses had become sealed to his eyeballs. <laughs> so that kind of tells you how hard uh, and how fast they were moving at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg talks about Facebook going on quote unquote lockdown, like, I'm pretty sure the employees still go home at night, but in China, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> well, and, and in crunching the numbers, it looks like it literally was about twice as fast. We can't, we don't know exactly when Uber hit a $1 billion valuation, but they did their Series B on, on $300 million in December 2011, and their Series C in August of 2013 on $3.5 So if you look back at their seed in August of 2009, they probably hit a billion dollars uh, about four years after founding, approximately twice as long as these... Uh, um, you know, their Chinese counterparts. So it really is a, an insane pace. And you just think about the size of the Chinese market and, and how, how, how car ownership is so, is so much less developed in China. And so there was, you know, just more of a hunger mm -hmm. for this kind of service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Uber, you know, as we've been mentioning, um, you know, they're, they're not blind to this too. And, and actually it turns out that Uber had had this kind of like small sort of clandestine presence in China since 2013. There's, there's a story that Travis and a few other Uber executives go over to China and, and Travis sort of famously, you know, calls back to headquarters in San Francisco and says like, Hey, like I need you to, I need you guys to, to tweak the tech so that like we can, like, we're going to go out here, uh, our executives sign up a few drivers and just like run some tests here in China. <laughs> And uh, so they start doing that in 2013, but they're just sort of testing. And then when when Didi and Quade start are in the midst of their merger, that's when Travis decides, OK, he's going to put his foot on the gas and launch for real in China. And Uber does. And pretty quickly, while Didi and Quade are, are consumed with the merger, Uber gets to a 30 percent market share kind of right off the bat. So it's now sort of a, they're a real player in the, in the market. How did that happen so quickly? 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We'll go back to like the story of technology in China is always the, is always the story of the big three. And one of the things that happened was, you know, Uber. So w- when they launched, you know, the integration was very poor in China because they were using Google Maps, and you know, we all know Google is is pretty much blocked in China. So the integration was poor, and also this idea of, of launching via the the black car or limo market in China was always a limiting one because it's certain it's just not that big of a market. So Uber kind of uh, toodles along for for a year and a half, and then re- and then uh, and then makes the the very kind of smart observation that Baidu has sort of missed this wave of <laughs> mobile payment competition and needs to catch up. So they solicit an investment in Baidu. They start using Baidu Maps, you know, which is much smarter about uh, transportation in China than Google, and the, the product just gets much better. Uh, at the same time, at the beginning of 2014, Didi and Kwaidi are, are merging. And, you know, as with all mergers, it's an awkward one and they kind of slow down. So um, I think, you know, Uber took advantage of, of sort of this opening um, uh, and, uh, and and made up some ground. But, you know, as, as, as we'll see, it was it was it was temporary. Yeah. So they come in, you know, swinging into the market with Baidu as a partner, get 30 percent market share. And Travis goes over and he meets he meets with Chang. He meets with the you know, the newly merged DD and, and Travis is he sort of walks into the meeting. He thinks Uber's international. DD's not at this point. You know, Uber has Travis is is convinced the better product, the better technology. They have Baidu Maps, which are the best maps in China, and he essentially offers to acquire DD. He frames it as an investment. He wants to invest in DD, but he wants a forty percent stake, and this is really. You know, uh, to my mind, at least, uh, seems like he's trying to say, like, hey, I'm just going to take you guys out on the cheap. And Chang and Didi reject this offer. And Brad, you write a lot about this meeting. So what what happened there? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, Travis kind of met his match. You know, one of the things that happens at this meeting is, uh, you know, Ching Wei stands up and on a, on a whiteboard kind of charts Uber's growth since 2010. And then, uh, in another, with another fever line, charts Didi's growth since 2012, and and the lines intersect, and and he projects that Didi will be larger than Uber, uh, be, primarily because the market in China is so much larger. And uh, and then the other, there's there's all sorts of little funny little uh, maneuverings uh, here at this meeting, and and one of the, the the Uber executives were were wondering whether the food that they had been served at the meeting was deliberately bad as a kind of <laughs> strategic maneuver. Uh, but it wasn't. I think. I think uh, it was. It was actually just a bad lunch. But you know, so there's there's <laughs> you need a like, royal taste tester. It's like yeah, the, like, like the Middle Ages here. All right. There's a lot of maneuverings here behind the scenes. Um, but you know, I think that uh, the you know to their credit, the the DD executives, uh, and at this point, Jean Liu, an executive from Goldman Sachs, is has is she's either advising DD at this time or has joined really as 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 Cheng Wei's partner. And I think there's a belief that um, you know that. As with as with so many other markets in China, the local player uh, will be able to prevail. You know, there's there's a lot of sort of you know, kind of fierce pride, I think, in the Chinese internet market that um, you know that they can uh, that they can hold their own. And and it's funny because I contrast that with the attitude in Europe, where we really don't see that. And so as a result, uh, you know, Travis and his his bid to acquire DD very early on was was rejected, and they resolved that they're going to fight it out in the marketplace. Yeah, and, and question on that. So, you know, Google doesn't operate in China, and many other large internet giants have, have been sort of kicked out of China and, and, you know, not allowed with the Great Firewall to, to operate on the internet there. 
why was it that that Uber was able to get to 30% market penetration and didn't um, DD have on its side the ability to just say, hey, we're going to make a couple of calls and like you really need to leave our country? <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the censorship uh, challenges that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google face are about information mm-hmm. and, and sharing, uh, you know, sharing information that the government uh, in China just doesn't allow. Right. And, and Uber is a transportation tool. So it, 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 was, it was sort of kind of less clear, um, that they were violating those rules. Now, I think, you know, there's an argument to be made. I don't happen to believe it was significant, but there's an argument to be made that maybe ultimately the Chinese government did tilt the playing field on behalf of Didi mm-hmm. and slow Uber down, or that maybe in the future, if Uber was going to stay in the market, they would have problems because obviously they do collect sensitive information about where people are and where they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Uber, Uber was not facing those kinds of censorship challenges. And to the extent that all these companies had problems and do have problems. They're, they're pretty universal in terms of who, who's allowed to drive for these services. Cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, Chang, Chang and Didi, you know, kind of essentially say to, to Travis, you know, after this meeting, like, you know, okay, you want, you want to fight, like, you know, we can do that. <laughs> Welcome to China. And, um, uh, you know, like we, we've been through this brawl with 30 other companies. We can, we can take you on too. And this is where, you know, I know I keep saying this throughout this episode, but really just reading about this is so surprising to me because um, we just don't see this in, in tech here in America. Things go like kind of nuclear at this point. So what happens is Didi and Uber both start raising huge amounts of money to fight each other in China. Um, Didi first announces. And not from the usual suspects either. And not from the usual suspects, yeah. You know, they already have the investment from the internet portals, but Uber raises $3.5 billion from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, um, you know, and, and, and Didi raises $7 billion of its own. So that's over $10 billion raised, you know, within a couple months. And they just basically start giving this money away to subsidize rides. And then Didi does something that I think, I suspect even Travis and Uber is... Machiavellian as they are in the U.S., couldn't even imagine and see coming. Didi starts investing in all of Uber's rivals around the world, including Lyft in the U.S. and Ola in India and Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia. And they they announced that they're going to literally, it's like the allies fighting the Nazis here. They've formed, (laughs) they have this global alliance to fight Uber that they start building. You know, what were, Brad, what were, (laughs) when people, investors and executives at Uber start seeing this happen, like, what was going through their heads? Well, I mean, I think they were dismissive of the global alliance, you know, because it, it was unclear what it really meant uh, or whether there was much value in sort of integrating each other's apps or how smooth that would be. Um, I think the more meaningful thing, like, you know, Uber was bringing a couple of assumptions to its battle with China that I think are interesting to examine. You know, one, obviously, I think at the time, Travis is pursuing a global network, but this is not really a, a network effects business, or if, if it is, it's very local. So it was sort of unclear that Uber's strength in the rest of the world would even translate into China. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. the, the great contrast is with Airbnb, where I think they do have more of a global network effect because they've got travelers uh, going back and forth across uh, across oceans. The other advantage I think Uber thought it had was a capital advantage. And what we really started to see in 2015 and 2016 was this, ama- you know, this unique capital market where, you know, there were all sorts of uh, unique uh, sources of capital that were willing to shower all these companies with money. And I think it was more, you know, the, the fact that Didi goes in and, and, and gets money from Apple 
uh, or, or you know that all, all of these um, in these sovereign wealth funds start to kind of provide capital that begins to convince all these companies that they are on a sort of unsustainable path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I don't you know I, the investment in Lyft, uh, the Global Alliance. I think the Uber guys, as arrogant and confident as they are, sort of shrug. But it's when a, you know it's when a company like Apple or Foxconn uh, gets into the fray and starts putting money into Didi that I think you know Travis and Emil Michael, his his deputy start to wonder, can they really win this battle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so by the summer of 2016, Didi is starting to pull away. And and whether that's because Chinese regulators subtly, subtly tilting the field towards them or because of this capital or just better execution, hard to say. But Didi claims by, by summer 2016 that they have 85% market share. So they've won back another 15% uh, that Uber had taken. And they're operating in 400 cities in China versus Uber, which is only in 100. And then apparently it's Uber's investors that start pressuring Uber to negotiate a truce. And Uber reaches out to Didi and says, you know, okay, let's begin peace negotiations. And and, and pretty quickly from when they reach out, you know, Brad, I think you say it's two or three weeks. um, They come to a deal where Uber sells its China operations to Didi in return for a 17% equity stake. And Didi agrees to invest $1 billion in Uber, uh, U.S. dollars, and get a board observer seat. How did, how did, how did that, that set of meetings you know, come together and, and differ from that first meeting when Travis went over? Yeah. Well, we, first of all, we should, you know, we, we should be clear that this is not a bad deal for Uber, right? It's a sort of a remar- yeah. remarkable retreat. And, um, you, know, tw- you know, nearly 20% of, of what will be kind of their major international rival you know, a billion dollars investment to kind of recoup some of the some of the massive losses. Um, you know, I think I think at this point, um, this was a very respectful set of negotiations, primarily between Jean Liu uh, of Didi and Emil Michael uh, from Uber. Um, you know, culminating in this, uh, as I depict in the book, this kind of famous uh, uh, a drinking session between Cheng Wei and Travis <laughs> in Beijing uh, the, over the over the summer of 2016, where they're drinking baiju and Cheng Wei was sort of hilariously dismissive of Travis's drinking abilities. Uh, but of course, Baiju is not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, I, I guess I don't have much illumination on how they they came to kind of 17 or 18 percent ownership stake. Uh, other than that, this is what sort of the market was suggesting at, at this time. And, you know, and, and for Didi, it's a great deal, too, because uh, they kind of win, um, you know, they they win uh, not just the Uber China brand and its customers and all those employees, but basically an open playing field to be the primary, you know, kind of transportation innovator in the world's largest transportation market. Yeah. And, and we'll, you know, we usually save this more for the end when we, um, our, our evaluation criteria, I think we're going to look at Uber here and say, you know, was this, usually we look at the, the M&A event and say, was this a good use of funds? Was this, um, you know, impactful and multiplicative in the future to bring this company in? And so the, the lens I think we should look at this through is, was it a good move for Uber to in, engage in all of this activity and then leave with a 17% stake in, in Didi? And like, uh, if you just look at the raw dollar leverage, I mean, it's a very short period of time of blowing $2 billion to get almost $6 billion in, in value of, you know, present dollars. And, you know, the hope is, is, uh, you make that investment and that DD continues to, to, to grow in value in China. And you, you raise a great point. One of the best markets in the world, or the best market in the world, the biggest market in the world should get remarkably bigger than, than Uber itself. So I'll, I think it was a good deal for Uber, and I'll give two reasons. But I'm I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Um, you know, one um, the 
and Uber may not have known this, but the regulatory environment in China was about to change for all the ride-sharing companies. And a lot of the big cities have now said it is illegal to drive for these companies if you don't live in the city. And that has constrained the supply of Didi and, uh, and, and slowed down its growth. So I think Uber got out at, at probably the right time. If, you, if you've got a constrained supply, being in a battle for the hearts and minds of drivers is not the position you want to be in if you're the foreign company. Yeah. And, and for listeners, yeah. uh, Brad was telling us this earlier. I, I had no idea. I think this is, this is super, uh, super new, super interesting. And um, I hadn't fully thought through it. Like, Brad, why do you think it's advantageous? And why would you think a, a city would... would um, legislate that. It seems like it's only good for business to have well, I think it's protection. City, it's protectionism. Sure. I mean, I think that the yellow cab fleets pay, are are a major source of revenue for cities and mm. the fees and taxes that they pay, and protect perhaps the medallion fees. Um, and so, I think that's one reason. I think they've they've kind of tipped their uh, fingers on the scale, as like as the taxi companies have done all around the world. And then the, I think the second reason is there's a rational argument around traffic and congestion, and obviously all the Chinese cities struggling with it mightily. That might be a little bit of a cover story mm-hmm. for for just protectionism. Uh, and and of course, you know the the pendulum may shift. Um, but I think for now, Didi is kind of fighting that regulatory battle, and and they've reorganized, restructured their company a little bit to put more emphasis on some of their license their chauffeured offerings and their and their commuting alternatives like buses. I think the other thing that happened and the reason why this was a smart deal probably for both companies is it became very clear over over the last 2 years that this market was about to undergo a major pivot into into driverless car technology. And so it really doesn't make a lot of sense to go uh, waging a war and spending a battle for a market that's going to be changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And now both Didi and Uber are spending a lot of that money that they might have been spending on subsidies uh, investigating the future. And I think that's a smart approach. Do you know if Didi is also working on a, a self-driving car offering? They are. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they've, they've been trying to hire some folks and uh, they've got – a team and um, uh, and uh, you know and, and they've got some partners. I think Baidu is also exploring it in China, and yeah, as as is everyone now. And it's all, it's of, of course very fashionable to say you're looking into it. Yeah. It's unclear to me now whether you know whether <laughs> Didi has made the progress of say Uber, which is testing cars now in, in Pittsburgh and a few other cities. Yeah, and one thing I learned from from your book, Brad, is is how fast uh, or how recent Uber is to this this uh, sort of area of self-driving cars that they really weren't tipped off to it until Travis got in one of the self-driving uh, Google cars when he went to meet with uh, uh, was it Larry Page or Eric Schmidt. That's right. It was Larry Page. But even then, remember, he that, that that's – my times are messed up. But I think that's 2013. Even then, he believes that Google will be Uber's partner right, in right. that effort. And, yeah. it, and it was only at the Recode conference in, in late 2014 where Sergey Brin is talking about it in a little bit of a dismissive way toward Uber – um, and Travis had gotten wind that Surya was going to have to talk and, and maybe announce its own sort of Uber competitor that I think Travis starts, starts to realize that Uber is not, uh, that Google is not a partner in, in self-driving cars, but, but a competitor. Mm-hmm. And that is when he begins to invest uh, very seriously in, in, uh, in self-driving cars. Gotcha. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time- and resource-draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. 
Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Let's move on to acquisition category and then come back to grading. But um, before I do, I just want to say, you know, we're recording this episode here in the middle of February in 2017, um, you know, because the deal has happened, but the story is is kind of far from over. Yeah. You know, just last month, Didi announced that they were going to invest $100 million in a company called 99, which is the primary Uber competitor in Brazil. Um, so they, they sort of, you know, all is quiet on the, on the, you know, Eastern front of the battle in, <laughs> in China. But, um, but I think this is, a, you know, the war is not yet over, uh, an armistice may be signed, but, um, you know, I think, I think I predict that we will see more Uber and DD, you know, going head to head throughout the world, you know, in the years to come. Yeah. The interesting analogy is that it's, it was the battle for China is, is settled, but the, at the end of the day, these are both global companies. And, you know, they, yeah. if, if not now, then that's the aspiration of the future. And, and they're global companies in a market where it's really not clear that being global gives you that much of an advantage. Yeah. Like to your, to your point yeah. about network effects, it seems like with Airbnb, it's, you know, it's, it's highly advantageous to have, have, uh, uh, people everywhere on a single network since they travel a lot. Or you could imagine like a eBay or Amazon where it's even stronger of a network effect because it literally, it's, it's all shipping. It doesn't matter where you are. But with Uber, you know, shy of having to download a new app when you go to a new place, it, it really doesn't seem that strong. It seems like these pockets of network effects that, that better describe the service. Yeah, and there's a belief at Uber that kind of technology will make a difference and that they can move kind of learnings around the world. But it, it's just not clear to me, like the, the the continued strength of Lyft in a lot of U.S. cities, I think is indicative of like, you know, maybe as long as you pick somebody up within three minutes, yeah. maybe nothing else matters. And, <laughs> and you know, that like yeah. Ola in India, you know, knowing that market, knowing the the cash habits of, of those people, you know, knowing just how, how to press the buttons of city governments um, or, or you know, what, what to do in, in streets that are just utterly congested. I mean, that's an advantage. And not to say that Uber doesn't have that because they have local mm-hmm. offices and very smart general managers. But, you know, I think there, there's a reason that Uber hasn't run the table yet. Right. And, and to your point, it's not that they aren't great at those things. It's that they don't have a structural 
advantage by gaining the position that they're in to necessarily make that N plus one market any easier than the N market. Right. And I think that they thought that capital would be the ultimate advantage, mm-hmm. but all these other companies have been able to fund, fund themselves just fine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so much good stuff for tech themes. Um, let's do category real quick. Ben, what's, uh, what's your take? So for uh, new listeners to the show, we normally uh, assign a category of people, technology, product, business line, asset, or other. And uh, asset, we added a a few episodes back when um, we were talking about purchasing a data asset. Um, And uh, in this episode, I am going to go with other and possibly create another one too. This was a takeout. I mean, this was a, a, Uber was not buying something here that, that they couldn't otherwise get by, you know, making a talent acquisition or, or, or buying an interesting new technology company. This was literally, you are a massive competitor and we, it is massively disadvantageous for our business for us both to be fighting here. It's so. like geopolitical, <laughs> yeah. right? It, yeah. it was a, yeah. it was a peace <laughs> treaty. It was, it was Yalta. Yep. You know, we will, we will yeah. cede this country to you and, uh, and, and be putative allies. Uh, and of course they took seats on each other's board. Yep. Uh, and yet uh, it's an uneasy peace. Yeah. yeah, the category I was going to go with was sort of like, you know, marketplace consolidation, sort of like we talked about with Kathleen Phillips in the Zillow Trulia mm. episode. But um, but but the twist I was going to add is, you know, it's incomplete, right? Like it's it's a marketplace consolidation in, in one part of the world. But the fight continues elsewhere, as we've been talking about. Yep. So we should make bets on how long we think they'll be on each other's board. Yeah, they may. Who knows? Yeah. For all we know, they're they're not even, or that was a, a little illusory to begin with. I mean, they, they, those were not voting seats, as as far as yeah. I understood it. So, and that's a heck of a long way to travel for a board meeting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, that may have been optics. Yeah. What? Uh, so, what would have happened otherwise? I mean, Brad, I'm curious for you. Like, if they kept fighting, like, how long could this have gone on? You know, I think I think um, it could it could have gone on for a long time, but um, it would have been destructive to Uber and other parts of its business. You know, it 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 was um, you know it was fighting a multi front war. Instead of fighting in China, they they kind of reinvested in their India operations, so that wouldn't have happened. And I think they would have moved less aggressively into into driverless uh, cars and trucks. So they recently acquired Auto, a driverless car, mm-hmm. uh, a driverless truck mm-hmm. company. And, you know, and, and so perhaps we would, we would be, we would continue to see this war in China, but less activity in other parts of Uber's business. So I don't know that they were constrained with capital. They phrased, you know, 12, 13 billion plus. They could have kept fighting, but in the end, for what? You know, for, for points of market share. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, uh, another thing to factor in here is if they hadn't gone and spent a couple billion dollars in China, kind of waging that war, could they have uh, focused on an earlier IPO? I mean, it's been eight years now that Uber has been around and, you know, they, they've gotten these capital, they, they went and aggressively raised capital from all sorts of different places to wage this war. Like, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but should they have IPO'd by now? What would have been the advantages of that? Well, I mean, they weren't, they haven't been constrained in raising money, right? So right. If, if anything, that would, that would be embracing a whole set of, of uh, challenges and, obligations towards transparency that clearly, particularly with every, you know, with all the troubles that Uber has had recently in the press, you know, the company is sort of not ready for. So, right. um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably valuable that they haven't gone public so they can kind of get their house in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the flip side though, is like, you know, I think, um, at least in terms of public perception and, and honestly, as like a user of the product too, like, 
Um, you know, like one story that like just sort of to me as a total outsider, but totally characterizes Uber to me is, um, I was in San Francisco. This was probably a year or two ago. I was going to meet a friend who's an Uber employee at dinner and I, I ordered an Uber to take me there. And the driver just started driving in the other direction, like clearly didn't want to pick me up. And, um, so I waited a couple minutes, you know, I ended up canceling the ride, then had to get another one. It was rush hour. I was like 30 minutes late to dinner. I showed up, I apologized you know, to my friend who works at Uber and he said, Oh yeah, happens all the time. And I was like, wait, you work at Uber. Like, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, uh, and I just wonder if, you know, without like, and, and I don't say that to be, to castigate Uber, but like they've been fighting on so many fronts for so long. If they'd had, if they'd had the space and time to focus a little more internally, um, you know, I wonder if some of these problems that we hear so much about there uh, wouldn't have popped up or, or would be taken care of by now. It's perhaps, I mean, it's a company that, you know, whose, whose founder and CEO, you know, had a kind of manifest destiny to be the, uh, the global transportation innovator and, you know, kind of moved in one mode uh, aggression uh, and, and I think like, you know, all these guys are disciples of Bezos, right? And they're, <laughs> they're kind of following that blueprint of boldness. And, um, but I think it's, it's true. I mean, like, you know, Uber's not infallible to some extent, you know, it's still very much dependent on the limits of, of GPS. And, you know, I, I was just in, in DC and took, was taking Ubers and lifts all around the city. And every single time there was a phone call. Between me and the driver, where are you? What street are you? You know, what street are you on? There's a lot. There's lots of aspects of the transaction that Uber just can't control because it doesn't. You know, can't it doesn't control GPS and you know is is operating on on a smartphone smartphone platforms that it doesn't that it doesn't own. So there's lots of rooms for uh, room for improvement for sure. Let's. I feel like we've been touching on it uh, as we often do throughout the show, but um, <laughs> let's jump into tech themes. Ben, what uh, what do you have? A big one that I really want to talk about is company culture and its impact on business trajectory. I think that um, Uber is one that has been a win-at-all-costs company. And Brad, you mentioned in your book that Airbnb defined its mission and values very early, and Uber didn't really. Their their mission and values were just keep going and win. And I, I think you had a more eloquent way, eloquent way of, uh, of phrasing it, but... It's really something where they're massively leaving a scorched earth behind them. They've won so far through incredible, you know, boldness and strong headedness. And they're leaving, like, everybody has a different reason to be pissed off at Uber. <laughs> it seems very true, particularly recently. Yeah. And I mean, drivers are, are feeling like they're getting the, the short end of the stick. Uber claims that they're their customer, but they're changing the take rate so the drivers get less. With riders, they're feeling like they're getting the short end of the stick on, on surge pricing too. And this uh, this will probably be last week by the time we uh, we release this episode, and there will be new news since then. But just a horrible news coming out of the Uber engineering organization yesterday with the you know misogynistic, sexist behavior that um, Uber has moved incredibly fast. Everything in the name of winning, and there's a lot of problems there. And I think that I'm not totally sure this is a tech theme that applies to every other company, but we're certainly seeing it in other companies too, where. As everyone is a, a you know either a disciple of Bezos or let's just call it a disciple of boldness, we're really seeing a, a lot of this churn in the wake. And I think as a lot of these uh, mega unicorns get ready to start going public, that's going to be a major issue for them. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I, 
I think I th- I did think it was interesting that Uber kind of came late to developing its its values and and when it did when Travis did present them to the company in 2015 they they very much mirror Amazon's in fact some of them are quite similar and I think it's a company to some extent that is still searching for its identity um, mm-hmm. and um, you know and and like I don't you know first of all I I don't jump to conclusions about the about the um, broad I'll say I don't jump to broad conclusions about the engineer who blogged about her time at Uber I think it's it's deplorable what she went through uh, but it's hard to reach broad conclusions about a company culture from an anecdote mm-hmm. um, and, and you know we will see if, if others kind of follow in their wake um, and how well Uber does in address you know investigating and addressing her her claims but I mean I think it's true that you know this is a company that as they all are in in, in rapidly growing uh, internet world that was marked by a lot of chaos early on. And mm-hmm. yeah, I talked to lots of Uber employees and Airbnb employee, employees in my, in my book whose experiences kind of mirrored, you know, the, the folks at Amazon early on, just chaos, um, you know, the busiest year, two years of their life kind of traumatized when they get <laughs> in, uh, when they leave. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I certainly don't want to make excuses for Uber on the, on that, uh, with that sexual harassment, uh, those allegations. But I think, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to watch. And I think, you know, calmer heads hopefully will prevail before we kind of reach broad conclusions. I think it's, let me put it this way. I think it's unfair to the many accomplished women who work at Uber and have leadership positions to just dismiss it as a frat boy culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and totally. I mean, it's, we're, we're at the beginning of the news cycle on this and, uh, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, that's why in, in tech as well as in politics, that's why the role of, you know, an independent inquisitive press is so important. And, um, you know, the story remains to be told. But I think there is no question that, you know, and, and I suspect even people who work at Uber and if listeners, if you do work at Uber, you know, reach out to us and uh, would love to hear your perspectives. But I, I think it's uncontroversial to say, like you said, Brad, there are a lot of challenges uh, and chaos there that needs to be solved. That seems that at least seems clear. And I think it's a sort of a hopeful sign that uh, Travis last year hired an executive from Target named Jeff Jones to to be his uh, his right hand. Um, I think his his title is president. Um, and and one of Jeff's goals for 2017 was to uh, address the rider community. You know, we all know from being in this uh, industry that. That two-sided marketplaces are hard, you know, and mm-hmm. from the very earliest days of eBay, yeah. you had sellers complaining or buyers complaining. It's just hard to balance the balance the two. I mean, Airbnb's approach is clear. Like, they are kind of a host-driven community, and they, they started as hosts, and they cater to their hosts. Uber is really a rider-driven community. The founders started out wanting classy rides around San Francisco, and so, you know, they've – you, you kind of have to pick where you start. And so Uber now is sort of focusing on the driver community and has a lot of work to do, I think, to quell some of the dissatisfaction, particularly among full-time drivers. And, you know, if we all, when we get into these cars and talk to our drivers, we know that dissatisfaction is there. Yep. And partly, you know, David, as you said, because of the sort of relentless lowering of the fares to try to position Uber as a, as a uh, alternative to, uh, to car ownership. And you, you touch on another thing that that's been a tech theme for us before, and um, couldn't ring truer here is is founder DNA. When you when you describe the culture and values and um, and character of a company, not even through like the internal workings, but in the way that the the product experience feels when you use it, it's it's 
almost indistinguishable from the founder's personality. And very rarely does a company, even when it goes through multiple CEOs, significantly deviate from that that founder DNA. I think we talked about it in the next episode, David. Um, we talked about it definitely in the uh, the Amazon episode. And it, it just uh, – companies take the, the shoes of their founders and, and stay that way kind of forever. Yeah. Go ahead, Brad. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, Garrett Camp is really the inventor of Uber, yeah. and uh, and he's on the board, but isn't a large presence in the company. Um, and the idea, you know, every every company I like to say is has to sort of combine uh, idealism and ruthlessness. And the idealism of Uber almost comes from Lyft. You know, it's funny because uh, mm. Logan and John from Lyft are talking about replacing car ownership and solving traffic on on the, on the highways of L.A. far before Travis ever was at Uber. Mm-hmm. I think that he drew a lot of their idealism and kind of borrowed it. And I think it's authentic and it's now a mission at Uber as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if you know, if, if, if that does make a difference and we'll see, I think the genuineness, of, the idealism is more genuine at Lyft than it is at Uber. <laughs> And yeah. I certainly don't mean that that founder DNA is a, a negative slide. I think for kind of for better or for worse, you're uh, you know you're 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 stuck with it. It's it's your personality. The um, the tech theme that I wanted to talk about is I think in many ways just a uh, a slightly different perspective on the culture question, you know, and the founder DNA um, from a investor view uh, as opposed to a kind of internal company view. And that's the, what this story of both Uber and Didi really highlights for me is the difference between building a moat and scorching the earth, you know, and, and these are companies, all of them in ride sharing really, you know, I mean, I think Lyft has, you know, gotten dragged into it too. And probably all the other companies around the world, like they've taken this scorched earth approach and they've gotten huge, you know, probably you know, I, I, I don't know, but I would suspect that just in terms of net revenue to the company, Uber is probably larger than Airbnb at this point and, and, and Didi perhaps as well. Um, they've gotten big quickly, but you have to ask how sustainable is what they're doing. Um, and, and I think at, at points along the way, you know, it's clear through this story that Uber and others, you know, thought perhaps capital raising was going to be a sustainable advantage and a moat that they could build, um, thought that driver density was going to be sustainable. Well, it turns out it's really easy for drivers to multi-home <laughs> and they do all the time, you know, and I think about that versus, versus as you juxtapose in the book, Brad, you know, kind of Airbnb and while it's, while what they're doing and what they're, what they're, the market they're attacking looks very similar you know, I do think they've taken a much smarter approach to building a moat and that's around, you know, focusing on the community, you know, things like a host could multi-home, but, you know, by making reviews and trust and interaction between the community, the kind of focal point of, of the network, you know, when, once you have 50 positive reviews on Airbnb, you know, you're not going to spend much time on HomeAway because you're going to get so many more bookings. And that's, I think, something that the ride-sharing companies haven't. And, and I don't know if it's possible to create something like that or if the dynamics of the market are just such that it's not, you know, something where you can build a moat um, like that. But as an investor, it makes me think about, you know, those dynamics. Yeah, David, it's really interesting to think about how could Uber... Lyft, DD, how could ride sharing in general be better at building their flywheels for defensibility? Because 
I, I love that point that it's just not as the network effects just are not as strong as an Airbnb or other businesses. Like, uh, at least in the global sense, what could they do to, to bolster that? I think that there's a belief, particularly among some Uber investors, that um, maybe there is a moat. We just don't see it right now. That when the the capital environment changes and these companies have to get profitable, we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna separate the men from the boys, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and so we don't yet know because none of these companies have had to get real or rationalize yeah. rationalize their balance statements. Um, you know, Lyft clearly still loses a, a lot of money. You know, and they they uh, they discount. They're still in expansion mode. They don't have the scale that Uber has. So. You know, in, in some respects, it almost might be too early to make uh, kind of you know judgment on the value of these businesses, and and the and there's ambiguity around driverless cars. Um, there's still some regulatory questions. I mean, the, there there's I would say that there's a, there's still a lot of regulatory ambiguity around Airbnb. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a separate topic, yeah. but almost like cities are waking up now to the potential. Uh, and the disruptive power of Airbnb and are beginning to wonder if they want residential communities to have uh, little hotels sprinkled throughout and all the problems and, <laughs> and economic opportunities that brings. And so that's Airbnb's challenge. I mean, Uber, I think, has to hope that we move into a different capital environment and the, all these companies like Lyft, but also like Juno, this New York startup that's giving its drivers equity, that all that stuff starts to look you know, very unsustainable in a, in an environment where companies have to go public and they have to show profits. Mm-hmm. You know, right now Juno is winning this battle for hearts and minds in New York of drivers because you know drivers can feel a part of it, and we have no idea whether any of that is sustainable. So <laughs> uh, it's still we're still you know 2017. We are still kind of high on the on the uh, on the drug that is internet stock yep. right and and this amazing opportunity um it se- i agree david it seems to me like the moat is uh, a lot shallower in the ride sharing market but i think that there is a belief and it, it may be a sort of errant one that uh time will anoint uh, uber uh, as as the king and we'll see Brad, thank you for bringing your uh, uh, your seasoned journalistic take to this and you're right the my crazy went. metaphors <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, you want to run to the conclusion? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, I think we discussed earlier, you know, my grade on this, you know, is probably, a, I think I'd give it a, well, I think I'm going to give it a B plus for both sides because it was clearly the right thing to do. And um, uh, in that it was just going to be unsustainable going forward. Um, but also sort of, you know, I, I don't get into a territory, I guess a little bit punitively, like, I'm scratching my head a little bit as like, if I were a board member of one of these companies, how would I let the situation get to this point? (laughs) But Brad, you make the great point that like, you know, Hey, this was a good investment for Uber, you know, despite all that distraction. But I just keep coming back to thinking about what are they building here at these companies and what is going to be sustainable and 10 years from now, you know, if you're, if you really don't know, you know, 10 years into the company or close to 10 years into the company in Uber's case, if you don't know what the mode is you're building, um, that would make me really scared. So, um, B plus for me. I, you know, it's interesting to think about, I, I phrased it in the raw dollar perspective earlier that they got, you know, two to three X on the dollars that they, they poured into China, um, in terms of the highly illiquid stock that they have in, in Didi. And that's sort of the, like, private equity approach. It's like if Uber wanted to be a conglomerate, then like hooray, they, they put in some dollars and got, you know, three times those dollars out. Um, I don't know that it actually gives them, it doesn't 
if the machine that they're building is Uber technologies proper, then what did they really get out of, you know, investing in, in Didi? Does it actually help the Uber business to have a large value in Didi? And so I think with Uber, you know, to me, it was like, it was their best option and it was the best record to pull at this point and a, a you know, highly profitable one. Um, but David, I, I sort of agree that like, I don't, I don't know that it was that strategically interesting other than kind of competitive truce. And then from the DD side, you know, you got to wonder, is there any way they could have gotten away with this without giving up 70, 17 to 20% of their company? So that, that's, a, that's a little rough too. So, you know, I think, um, I think I'm going to go a minus for, for Uber because there, there might've been a lot more interesting things they could have done with that capital over those years. Um, and I'm going to go with uh, B minus for, uh, for D Brad, what do you think? Well, I don't know that I want to get into the business of the grading, <laughs> but I'll, the only point I would add is that both of these, uh, companies and their investors and their founding teams took enormous amounts of dilution to wage this battle. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you're, a, let's say, a Cheng Wei right now, a Didi, and you, you know, you, you had a certain percentage of your company, uh, and then you merged with Kwaidi, and then you merged with Uber China, and, you know, and you're sitting there probably with your low single digit ownership percentage and, and still extraordinary, you know, stake. But, but like, what did, you know, what did you gain for all that dilution? Um, you know, was there, I, I guess, I guess the, the question is, was there a way to win in the marketplace? Um, and, and what we've been saying, um, yeah. is, is that perhaps not, right? Perhaps, uh, it was, it was, uh, I mean, Didi always had the high ground in China because it had the integration with Tencent. So the question is, was there a way to just kind of leverage that position and, and, uh, circumnavigate all these awkward mergers? Um, I don't know. M- maybe there wasn't because it's, it's just too easy for other, uh, competitors that come in with alliances with the big three. So uh, I don't know. I think we have to give Cheng Wei in particular uh, credit for, you know, b- moving very quickly from being an anonymous middle manager at Alibaba to really joining the ranks of the upstarts. And it's why I included him in the book and why I was very impressed with his journey. Yeah. Ben, do you want to really quickly uh, mention uh, our yeah, hot takes. follow-up and hot take? Yeah. So we just have uh, one dimension listeners. Um, the, Snapchat IPO will price on the evening of March 1st, go out on the 2nd for the first day of trading. Um, David and I are going to be recording a, uh, an episode on the 3rd uh, in the morning, and then hopefully uh, producing that and getting it out over the weekend uh, on the 4th. So um, we'll let you know when that's here, and uh, stay tuned for far too early to tell speculation and lots of... Uh, you know, lots of fun analysis on Snapchat because we haven't really covered the IPO yet, or I'm sorry, the, the S1 yet. And no matter what happens the first day of trading, there is some gold to talk about in there. Absolutely. Carve out? Yeah. Um, I'll do mine real quick. So I, uh, you know, I, I've, I think our carve outs collectively between us, David, have been wait but why like five times so far in this show. But um, I was recently on a, a flight back from uh, from London and had just like a, a way too much time and read a whole bunch of wait but why. And the, um, this one from 2014 that I really love is why you should stop caring what other people think, taming the mammoth. And he does a, he, he brings up that there's a really great idea, um, that, you know, you shouldn't care what other people think, but it's, it's, it's deeper than just like this, this thing that we always talk about. Like we frequently, uh, talk about how we're people pleasers or, you know, we overweight our perception of what other people are, are talking about. 
um, or, or thinking of us. And, and really, they're just not thinking that much about us. They're consumed in their own lives. Their head's probably in their smartphone. But then links it to this evolutionary track that I never really thought about before. That was It was evolutionarily advantageous for other people to like you, for you to be a member of the tribe and have other people like you and want to look out for you and feel sameness so that they would protect you in events. And so it, you can sort of trace that, that um, you know, every, every splashy article that we read is, you know, don't care what other people think about you. And, and here's some new research to show that you really need to be your own person and underweight the, the, that influence in your life. And like, as it turns out, that, that's really, really grained into us or, 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 you know, it's possibly the result of natural selection of that being a highly advantageous thing in the fact. And we're really fighting biology there. And so it's a, a really cool yeah. way to tie those two things together. Yeah. You know, who probably doesn't have that trait <laughs> is Travis, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe he cultivates it through Zen practice, but, yeah. um, mine real quick, uh, is a podcast, uh, conversations with Tyler by Tyler Cowan, who we've talked about on the show before, um, co-author of the marginal revolution blog, really good. His first one is with Peter Thiel. And, uh, well, I certainly don't agree with all of Peter's, um, uh, statements, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. He has another great one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well worth listening to. Um, Brad, uh, do you want to do you want to close it out with with your uh, recommendation for our, our listeners to listen to or, or perhaps read? Well, in the coming sure, weeks? sure. Uh, aside from my own uh, touting my own book, which naturally <laughs> needs to be on you're welcome to recommend your own but book. I'll, we I'll, recommend well, it. Well, thank you. So I'll, I'll I'll I will not do that, but I'll I will say, and this is an easy one to recommend, but you know, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari was, uh, was, oh, so was seminal good. for so many people. And he's got a new book out that I'm just starting, um, but enjoying very much. Uh, Homo, Homo Deus, I think is how you pronounce it, A Brief History of Tomorrow, which, uh, you know, is, is him kind of looking at the future and automation and, and the future of humanity. And I just find his writing to be mesmerizing. I listened to the first book on on uh, Audible. I'm reading this one, but I might actually get the Audible. And um, he's just brilliant, you know, and he puts everything in perspective. We can be so consumed uh, with the, you know, a, the, the daily ebb and flow of the tech industry. So to be able to step back and look at humanity in an epical uh, time frame is why I just love his his work. So he's got a new one coming out that everybody should read. Love it. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens 
as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for us. Um, to close it down, I just want to say, uh, if you want to join the Slack, we're there. Join us, 400 strong, and uh, and would love to bring you into the conversation. Share the show if you liked it on Twitter, Facebook, rate us on iTunes, wherever you feel that would be uh, um, something you want to do. Go read the upstarts. It's fantastic. And thanks so much to, to Brad for joining us, and we will see you for the next one.